All right, we're in Ezekiel. If you want to open your Bibles to chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Two cannibals meet one day. The first cannibal says, you know, I can't seem to get a tender missionary. I've baked them, I've roasted them, I've stewed them, I've barbecued them, I've tried every sort of marinade. I just cannot seem to get them very tender. Second cannibal asks, what kind of missionary are you using? The other replied, you know, the ones that hang out at that place at the bend of the river, they have those brown cloaks, rope around the waist, sort of bald on top with a funny ring of hair on their heads. Ah, second cannibal replied, no wonder, those are friars. (laughs) It's part of a whole genre of cannibal jokes, which are just precious. We're going to see the princes of Jerusalem describe themselves as meat in a cooking cauldron. So there is a there is a segue here. Sounds bad, and it is, but they thought otherwise. You gonna be okay? How could they think being in the cauldron was something good? Well, just as a cooking cauldron, a cooking pot protects the meat from the fire, they thought that living in the city of Jerusalem. We'll see they thought of that as the cauldron would keep them, the meat, safe. Surely God would never let his city or his sanctuary fall to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. God is interested in people. He's interested in you personally. Sanctuaries and cities are important historically and geographically but only as a set and a stage for God to work in and upon your life. The Jews of Judah in the 6th century had come to a place where God must destroy the props around His people in order to regain their personal attention. And so we begin in verse 1, Then the Spirit lifted me and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there at the door of the gate were 25 men, among whom I saw... Jazaniah the son of Azur and Pelatiah the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. Now we've commented before about the Holy Spirit transportation system here. Apparently it was common for a prophet to be lifted up, to be carried away by the Holy Spirit and to find himself transported to another location. There's another sense too of being lifted, one we can talk about by way of application. The Holy Spirit can lift you spiritually. He can lift your spirits, we might say. God in the Psalms is portrayed, and we sing this line from the Psalms as the lifter of our heads. Uh, I I, I don't know why, but you know, some things just really grip you and and they stick with you. And when I I hear that, you know, I always see somebody uh, with with their head down and, and just in a despondency or a depression. And, and someone else, in this case God, reaching out and gently under the chin, lifting the head up to, uh, to look you right in the eye. He is the lifter of your head. With tenderness, He elevates our gaze from earth, as it were, from our problems, from looking down, to look up into His beautiful face. And so, uh, maybe you're going through something tonight. Maybe it's going to start in the morning. Uh, but uh, sooner or later, you're going to be looking down. Uh, it happens to everybody. Uh, not a word of knowledge, I'm just, you know, talking. You know, it could be a prophecy for somebody, but you don't know. I'm not looking at you. 
sooner or later you're going to be looking down and the Lord is the lifter of your head. His Holy Spirit wants to lift you. He wants to lift your spirits. He wants to show you His love and His grace and His mercy. Uh, He's your provider, whatever it is spiritually that you need. You have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And so let Him lift you and carry you to that place of ministry and service. Now in our last study, we saw that the Lord was departing from His sanctuary and eventually He'd depart from the city itself. Here we see Him pause at the east gate. Sometimes a famous or an important person like a president of the United States, will stop his motorcade and get out and begin to engage folks in the crowd. It's always a very endearing moment as someone of that stature takes time to have a, you know, a moment with just one person. And, and I'm always kind of gripped by that. God didn't simply tell Ezekiel what he was going to do or tell him what to say. In a sense, he brought him into his counsel and he showed him some of the reason for what he was about to do. And so, uh, you know, God could have just given Ezekiel the word of the Lord wherever he happened to be. But he said, you know, uh, Holy Spirit, I want you to bring Ezekiel to me. I'm, I'm on my way out of the city. I'm leaving. But I'm here. At the, I'm pausing at the east gate. I want you to go grab Ezekiel like you have a habit of doing and lift him up and bring him to me because I want to show him something more. I want to bring him into my council and let him know what I'm all about. And, and it, it, you know, it, it just reminded me that God, I, I think we can see in a sense that God pauses and he pauses for us. He pauses for his people. He's always paused, as it were, waiting to bring us into his council. Uh, you know, we might say that God always has time for us, but that sounds so trite. But God has paused. He's waiting. Uh, and, and He'll wait indefinitely, in one sense, for us, in a relationship with us, to speak with us and to talk to us and to let us know what He's about. And so we simply have to gain a sense of desiring to pause with Him and listening to Him. Ezekiel was shown 25 men. Earlier, he had been shown 25 priests. These are a different group. We're told in a moment they are princes of the people. They're secular leaders. There is some confusion if you study this because there was a Jazaniah in the first group among the priests and there's a Jazaniah here. And so if you're not careful, you just think it's the same group of guys. But if you read both together, you'll see that the two men have different fathers and so it's just a coincidence that there are two men named Jazaniah in the uh, two groups. Jazaniah, I guess, was the most popular boy's name of the 6th century. Uh, you, know how, you know how names come around? Sometimes you can, get, you can get really good at this and somebody can tell you their name and you can tell them pretty much the decade, at least, in which they were born uh, because everybody was named certain things and popular names. Uh, and so Jazaniah, uh, good, solid Bible name that you don't hear too much anymore. Uh, maybe a middle name. You know, I mean, I'm just throwing that out there to you. And, uh, uh, but there were two of these guys, uh, and so it was a popular name at the time. Now, it might be one person or more than 25, but all of us have people that seem to oppose the Word and the work of God. Some openly, some privately, uh, some belligerently, some, uh, you know, not so. Um, and often they're in positions of authority and power over us. 
Uh, and, and that was the case here, as we'll see in Israel. There were these 25 leaders, the rulers of the people, the princes, and they, they're going to oppose the word of God. They're going to replace it with their own uh, counsel. It would have devastating effects on the people. And in our own lives, you know, there may be where you work or some place where you frequent. There are those that are opposing you and opposing the word and the work of God. But you have authority as well. You're an ambassador for heaven. You are a person with godly authority. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible, and certainly in the book of Acts, is when Philip, uh, the evangelist, is sent down to the road to just hang out there. Uh, you know, and then finally the Ethiopian eunuch comes by. And we have a study we do on this where we talk about how the Ethiopian eunuch, I mean, he is probably way high up there in the councils of Candace, the Candace of Ethiopia, maybe second in command a man of real wealth and power and authority. And yet, as you read through the story and you see how God works through Philip to bring uh, this man into the knowledge of Jesus Christ, into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is the man with real wealth in that story? Well, it's Philip because he has the treasure of the gospel. And who is the man with real power in that story? It's Philip because the Holy Spirit is telling him what to do. He's anointing him and filling him and overflowing from him. Who is the man with real authority in that story? Well, it's Philip, because he says, when the eunuch says, who is this person talking about in this, script, in this passage that I'm reading? Philip says, I can tell you exactly what is going on in that passage. I can tell you how to get saved. I can give you a message right now that will bring you to heaven. And so he's a person of authority. Uh, from a worldly standpoint, he's just a hobo sitting at the side of the road, you know. He's, yeah, seriously, I mean, you know, he's just a guy sitting on the side of a dirty, dusty road as this amazing caravan goes by. Uh, you know, the, if you're second in command to the Candace of Ethiopia, you're not on foot, uh, certainly. He's being carried, and he's with a big caravan. And, and so, you know, this is the idea that, that you may be opposed right now. Uh, but you're the person with wealth, you're the person with power, you're the person with authority. Use it gently, use it lovingly, use it graciously in order to minister. Verse 2, He said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city, who say the time is not near to build houses, this city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Why were they discouraging new housing starts? Were they in like a recession? Uh, worse. The background for this is the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, contemporary, back in Jerusalem, there he was giving his prophecies to these princes. In Jeremiah 29.5, we read something that Jeremiah told to the exiles in Babylon. So Ezekiel is with the exiles in Babylon, having been carried away during the second siege. Jeremiah is back in Jerusalem ministering. That's where these princes are. This is the vision that Ezekiel sees. And one of the things Jeremiah says to the exiles is this. Jeremiah 29.5 Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Jeremiah, speaking forth the word of God, instructed the exiles in Babylon, you might as well settle down. You should build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens, because your exile is going to last a long time. Seventy years, as a matter of fact. And so this was the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. You know, here are these people, 
Nebuchadnezzar had come once, he had come twice, what was going to happen? And Jeremiah said, well, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. We're going to be in captivity, in exile for 70 years. And so, go peacefully. This is God's discipline. This is God's judgment. Build houses. Settle down until you hear uh, from the Lord that it's time to return. Now, the princes of the people in Jerusalem, they blew off Jeremiah's counsel. They scoffed at the word of God through him. Instead of accepting the prophecy of a lengthy exile, they told the people of Jerusalem that this city is the cauldron protecting us and we're the meat. They thought of themselves like a prime cut of the best beef or pork. They were more like Charlie Tuna. Remember Charlie Tuna? Who remembers Charlie Tuna? Only the best tuna gets to be Stark is tuna. Personally... And this is just me. I never really get the commercials where the main characters want to qualify to be eaten. Why would you want to be... Why would Charlie Tuna want to be caught so to be chopped up and put in that awful, disgusting liquid that comes in a tuna fish can? Or how about the Foster Farms chickens? Why do they want to be eaten? Or how about those little cookies that get eaten one bite at a time while you watch? There's something creepy about that. Which is it Keebler or which is it's one of you know what I'm talking about? They're like, oh ah you know, and they're just little at a time they're being cannibalized. I, I don't get it. But it works. I mean it's a it's a famous ad camp. There's always some some meat or some character that wants to qualify to be eaten by human beings. I I don't get it. Now, the princes were in a position of leadership and example, and as such, they could give counsel. The trouble was, their counsel was wicked because they were too busy devising their own iniquity. Their sin and sinful habits made them dull to the warnings of the prophet, and to justify ignoring the warnings, they gave counsel of their own. What is biblical counseling? Well, see if you agree with this statement. Biblical counseling is Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-empowered, loving, practical application of God's truths with the goal of spiritual maturity and fruitfulness. That's, isn't that good? That's a great definition of what it means to give biblical counsel. You can visit the International Association of Biblical Counselors website and they'll give you a lot more information on how to counsel God's way. Biblical counseling, in a word, is discipleship. That's essentially what it is. We have our own understanding of counsel and therapy and all these kinds of words, but biblical counsel is to disciple someone. Now, we normally think of discipleship as what the world now calls mentoring. You work with somebody younger, less experienced, uh, teaching them principles and precepts. That's certainly part of discipleship. But any time a person needs what we would call counseling, we need to treat it as discipleship. We, we need to uh, treat them as a disciple and bring them more into a maturity and a fruitfulness for Christ. Thus, we're never looking for the latest psychological methods or techniques. We're counseling the same way we disciple. And, and so we want to bring people into a deeper relationship with Christ and into a greater obedience to Jesus Christ, and to be a follower of the Lord, and to recognize their justification. If, you know, first of all, all counseling, there's pre-counseling to people who are not Christian. Well, how do you counsel a person that's not a Christian? You evangelize them. Uh, 
because they can't do anything that God wants them to do until they repent. They don't have the power. They don't have the ability. And so uh, all counseling of non-believers is pre-evangelism and, and evangelism. And then once a person is saved, then it's a matter of discipling them. What does the Word of God say about this? And uh, let's, let's do this. Uh, and to realize your justification and your sanctification and that you're on your way to glorification. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's really what biblical counsel is. It's just discipleship. Verse 4, Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. The princes denied and defied God's prophet. So God spoke to them through another prophet. When people deny and defy God's word, the answer isn't to appeal to them from some other source. It's to give them more of the same, more of God's word. And I only say this because sometimes uh, people can be difficult. You know, even Christians, they say, well, I, you know, you told me to go do this and to, but, and I've tried that and it doesn't work. A lot of times, it's kind of funny, some of you with young children, you, you, you know this is true, but, you know, we, we still teach, uh, what the Bible teaches, and that is you should uh, practice corporal punishment on your children. I always pause because one time I said capital punishment. And, uh, <laughs> we, you know, you, you should spank your children in a biblical way, okay? Uh, and a lot of times when we teach this, people come back, young couples come back, and they say, I tried that and it doesn't work. Well, you won't know if, that it's worked until your children are maybe 18 years old. Uh, you're not going to spank them until they're 18. Hopefully, if you're doing it right, you'll only spank them until they're six or seven or eight years old, and then after that, you move into more uh, different types of discipline and, and whatnot. Uh, but you, you can't know that it doesn't work uh, after doing it a couple of times, and, and it does work. And so uh, we want to just we just keep giving out more of the same word of God all the time. Verse five. Then the spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, "Speak." Thus says the Lord, thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. Earlier we learned that uh, Ezekiel was a functional mute. He only spoke when God told him to speak. Even with the word, we must have the leading and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The word without the Spirit is impossible to follow. Uh, it, it's just not possible. Had the princes followed the advice of Jeremiah, things would have remained status quo in Jerusalem. Instead, the council of the princes made things worse. It multiplied the number of people slain because there was a resistance to the discipline of God and God had to bring Babylon as a greater force, a greater fighting force, uh, then he would have... Actually, Nebuchadnezzar was happy uh, at the time after his second seize to just leave things the way they were. And, and because of the advice of these leaders and others, they continued to try to rebel against him and align with other nations. And he finally uh, did what other, any other self-respecting, despicable despot would do and came in and he just wiped out everybody. Uh, and so they should have just followed the advice of Jeremiah. They said, O house of Israel. In other words, they spoke with an apparent authority to the people. Jeremiah was saying, Thus says the Lord. 
And Ezekiel was saying, thus says the Lord. These guys were saying, oh, house of Israel, as if they were speaking with that same authority. But their counsel was wrong in their case because they were in sin. Christians can give poor counsel for a variety of reasons. They can be in sin, like these princes. They can be ignorant of God's word uh, and, and say things like, cleanliness is next to godliness which uh, I used to think was in the Bible. How many of you think that's in the Bible? Raise your hands. Obviously, I gave it away, didn't I? (laughs) I was at a homeschool seminar one time and one of the speakers used that you know, and said that cleanliness is next to godliness and they gave a reference for it. And I thought, wow, that's... I looked for it and I couldn't find it. But uh, so, you know... That's fine. I mean, we all make mistakes, but a lot of times we're just ignorant. By the way, I'm not saying that people should, you shouldn't give counsel or you should say, oh, I don't know what to tell this person because I don't know exactly what to say. Just don't answer their question. This comes up all the time. What if somebody asks me a question I can't answer? Don't answer their question. Answer some other question that they didn't ask. Say something. Jesus did this all the time. Jesus had the answer to all the questions, didn't he? Could you think of a question? Is there a question you could ask Jesus? I mean, other than if a tree falls in the forest. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jesus knew the answer to everything, and so people would come up to him and they'd ask him a question, and he'd just start talking about something else. Or, or Nicodemus comes to him at night, and he starts talking to him, and Jesus says, Hey, let a man be born again, and he'll never see the kingdom of heaven. What? What is that? Where do, who's, who said anything about being born or born again? Uh, we're in, are you listening to me? And so just don't answer their question. Just say, I don't know. You don't need to know everything. One of the things, I'll probably forget to say it a little bit later on, God knew the thoughts of these 25 men and God knows the thoughts of the people you're dealing with and 99 times out of 100, the question they ask you doesn't mean anything to them. They just are trying to get off track with some impossible philosophical problem and the real problem is the problem of the heart. They know they're sinners. There's an issue. Maybe they're mad at God. Maybe somebody in their family died. Maybe something like that that they're not revealing to you. But there's, God knows their heart issue. And so don't worry about having to answer questions. Now, Jake's going to do a series after our evangelism series on questions skeptics ask. If you want to know more, that's great. If you can give answers, give them. But you don't need to know any more than you know right now. I remember when I was a young Christian at Harvest Christian Fellowship, I believe it was Paul Havsgaard who was teaching for Greg Laurie that night. He said, if you're a Christian, whatever you know is enough to become a Christian because you're one. And so you don't need to know more than you know uh, to minister to somebody. And so be encouraged. And so... um, Back into our text. Uh, Now, one thing, we're talking about giving bad counsel. One thing you must become very sensitive to, I think, because it's so common, is counsel that is legalistic rather than based on grace. It's too easy to put burdens on people that they simply cannot bear. Uh, Our relationship with Christ isn't about what we don't do. It's not about the external things that we don't do. You know... Don't watch television. Don't go to the movies. Uh, Don't listen to music. Don't do any of these things and you will be more spiritual. Stay away from the computer, you know, and all of this. Throw your cell phone in the garbage and, and, you know, whatever. and, And there's all of these don'ts all the time. And on the surface it seems spiritual at first, but it really isn't because it's a form of righteousness that can't further your walk. The Pharisees didn't do a lot of things. There were 
uh, and, and this is true, there was a group of Pharisees that today we call the breezed, uh, breezed, the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because so that they wouldn't sin uh, by looking upon women lustfully, they would close their eyes when women walked by and they'd walk into things. Oh, you know, and so late in the afternoon, they, you, you see, the, what happened to you? Oh, you're, you ran into the wall because you didn't want to sin. Look at how spiritual you are. Well, you and I know how bogus that is. Externals do not make you either more acceptable or less acceptable to God. Externals do not make you approved. You are free to have your own individual convictions of conscience in external things. And so, don't be the kind of person that gives legalistic counsel and don't listen to legalistic counsel. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual things. Uh, and, and if you focus on those things, everything else will fall into place. Verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in its midst, midst, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron. But I shall bring you out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord. God turned their illustration back on them. The people they had led astray would be brought out of the midst, meaning that the city would afford no protection for them. They had feared the sword. They put on a strong front, these leaders, but it was a false front. With their mouths they told each other and others they would be safe, but in their hearts they were worried. Compare that to Habakkuk, who I've quoted before in our series on Ezekiel. You remember he, another contemporary of Ezekiel, he received the truth that the Jews would be taken captive and he spoke openly of the ensuing political and economic woe. There's not going to be any animals in the stalls. No fields are going to be planted. Everything is going to be in a deep, deep, long depression. And he said, but I will trust the Lord all the more. I will love the Lord and trust the Lord. Now, the princes were like the modern health and wealth teachers. Never say you're sick, even when you are, because it shows you have no faith. I, I, I love it. I, I love it when people are just, you know, they've got H1N1 flu, and they're, ah, are you sick? No, I'm not sick. They won't admit it because they don't want to confess it with their mouth. They're confessing their health and and all they need to do is have more faith. Habakkuk went from fear to faith while these princes went from false to fear. And so we don't want to be like them. Verse 9, And I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border. This was a clear message, easy to understand, using terms and images that were familiar to the princes and the people. I feel like it's just wrong to try to sound overly complicated or to use words and images folks can't readily comprehend. We're not to try to get people to say how smart we are, but to see how wonderful God is. Uh, and so, you know, when you share, be simple. There's a, I think the devil comes in and he, he says, oh, that's too simple, that's too easy, you sound stupid. And, and so we have a tendency to want to sound smarter, maybe as smart as we are. I mean, if you're a smart person, this is hard for you because you have to actually work at sounding not as smart as you are. You can't use words that you would normally use in your highfalutin intellectual circles. Come down to my level and use words that I understand. Working man words. 
Don't exacerbate the situation. I actually know what that means, but I never use that word because it sounds horrible, doesn't it? Whew, it sounds like psoriasis took over my body or something, you know. But uh, anyway, so be simple. Be very simple. Don't try to sound smart, even if you are. Try to sound a little bit, you know, come down to a level that people can understand. When the city fell and the folks tried to escape, they would not get beyond the border. All of this was necessary to remind them in their sin that God was the Lord. Verse 12, You shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes nor executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. Bottom line, instead of following God, they'd gone after the customs of the Gentiles all around them. That's always the problem, isn't it? We go after the world, we bring the world into our lives, we bring the world into the church, Uh, we try to disguise it, you know, as something spiritual, but it's really just worldliness. Verse 13, Now it happened while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? Now one of the princes, Pelatiah, suddenly and unexpectedly died. It was an Old Testament example of the sin unto death. The idea that sometimes God kills you rather than let you go on sinning. It was a sort of token, it was a foretaste of God's coming judgment assigned to them that Ezekiel's prophesying was true. And Ezekiel felt a little bit bad about this. Uh, Even though he knew these men were in sin, here's prophesying about this and he recognizes that God allows this guy to, to die, you might say, or kills him if you want to be more effective as a result of, hey, I want them to see that your prophecy is true. That's some powerful prophesying. That's something on your resume. When I prophesy, people die. <laughs> That's, you know, but Ezekiel was concerned. He had a heart for these people. Now, the rest of this chapter will be God's answer to his question. Ezekiel was worried about the godly remnant. He need not be worried. Reviewing, we would say that it was a time of prophetic upheaval. God lifted his prophet, empowered him, warned the people of coming judgment That sounds just like you and me, doesn't it? Living in these last days before the rapture of the church. Amen. 